All right, this morning we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 27 through 30. We're going to be expounding verses 27 through 29. Uh, the title is Striving Together in the Face of Opposition. So if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to these scriptures. Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would use your word to bless your people, build us up into maturity in Christ so that we would give you praise and glory. We ask this in the name of our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, a little, little background to the book of Philippians before we dig in. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a leading city of Macedonia. It was actually named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip. Uh, this, was the, this was the city in which Paul and Silas, as Roman citizens, were illegally beaten and imprisoned without trial. We read about this in Acts 16. This letter to the Philippian church was more than likely written from Paul's first uh, imprisonment in Rome. So it's kind of like a, uh, he was uh, kind of like house, under house arrest. Uh, and we believe that uh, this, this uh, letter was written around 60 to 62 AD. It was actually the first church that the Apostle Paul planted in Europe. Uh, he was very fond of the saints at Philippi. In chapter 4, we are told that it was the Philippian church alone that stuck with him after leaving Macedonia and even provided for his needs when he went to Thessalonica. And so the Apostle Paul wrote uh, this epistle uh, with great affection for the saints at Philippi. Now in verses 27 through 30, they deal with the church being in unity in order to successfully strive for the faith in the face of opposition. And so the exhortations given in this letter, obviously they include individual Christians because it's individual Christians that make the church up as a whole. However, this instruction is to, is to be received from a corporate perspective, okay? This isn't for individual Christians living out their own lives on their own apart from the church. The U words in verse 27, they are plural, they're not singular. And so there's gonna be some individual applications in these verses, but they should be seen in the light of how they affect the church as a whole. Now, as we, as we begin, I want you to imagine two boxers fighting in a ring. And one of the boxers is actually intimidated by the other boxer, and so the other boxer recognizes this, and the intimidated boxer, he, he takes kind of a, a retreating, timid posture. Now, what do you think that aggressive boxer is going to do once he notices this? Do you think he's gonna take it easy on the intimidated boxer? 
Probably not, okay? He's probably going to become even more aggressive and he's going to pummel him, all right? Once he senses that his opponent is weak and timid. If the church acts like the intimidated boxer, Satan and the world are going to respond by trying to pummel us until we cannot get up, okay? They're not gonna take it easy on us and cease their attack. Now, the Lord does not want his church to respond to opposition by being intimidated and then compromise out of fear. And so in these verses, the Apostle Paul instructs the church on how to remain faithful while facing opposition. In verse 27, he tells us how we're going to accomplish this. In verse 28, he tells us what should motivate us to do this. And then in verse 29, he tells us why we face opposition. So let's go ahead and dig in. Let's look at verse 27 more closely. This is the how-to. Now, the first thing that we are exhorted to do is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And before we proceed, I want to clarify any possible misconceptions about what Paul is saying, because the phrase worthy of the gospel, if we isolate that from the rest of scripture, can communicate the idea that after we're saved by the gospel, it's up to us to maintain our salvation by how we live our life. That is absolutely not true. Salvation would not be by faith alone. It would be faith plus works. And that's false. That is a, that is a Roman Catholic doctrine. Paul actually anathematizes this idea in the book of Galatians, specifically chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says that's not even another gospel. He says that's no gospel at all. All right, we would actually have reason to boast before God based on our own obedience to the law after being given a clean slate from our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9 makes it very, very clear that no one will boast before God. Every knee will bow. And in verse 10, it tells us that even our good works are ultimately wrought from God who prepared those works for us beforehand. And so salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Now we can elaborate on this much more, but that's not the intent of our time this morning. I just wanted to give some clarification. And so conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel simply means that after our salvation, we should live a life that demonstrates our love and gratitude to God for saving us. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it well. <clears throat> and he, speaking of Christ, died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so for us, a necessary part of living for Christ includes striving together in unity for the faith in the face of opposition. Now, the, the next exhortation I want us to look at is, is to be genuine at all times. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. He, he says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Now, when we, were, when we were children in school, some of you are still going to school, but when we were in children in school, sometimes there was, for one reason or another, the teacher had to leave the classroom. And this was usually when we felt a little more bold to get away with mischief. Uh, but uh, as soon as you would hear the teacher coming back down the hallway to come to the room, what would happen? All the students would, they'd be quiet, they would sit in their chair real nice and act like nothing happened while the teacher was gone. Now, Paul is not addressing the saints at Philippi like their little school children, but the idea is the same. 
Look, here's the thing. As an apostle, Paul had real authority given to him by Jesus. In Acts 16, Paul commanded a spirit of divination out of a slave girl in the same way that Jesus commanded demons out of possessed people. And so you see, Paul did not want the saints in Philippi acting differently while he was there because there's an immediate presence of his authority than if he was absent. All right, so we should not be like little school children who need the immediate tangible presence of authority to do the right thing and act the right way. People of true faith walk in the knowledge of God's constant presence in their life wherever and whenever they are. And this is actually one of the things that should encourage us as Christians when we face opposition. And so by faith, apart from the visible presence of authority, we walk in the fear of the Lord at all times. This is what the Apostle Paul says later on in the letter of Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, so then, my beloved, there's the affection, <clears throat> just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the next exhortation I want us to look at in this verse is the call to stand firm as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. Jesus was the most humble man that ever walked the face of the earth, but he was not spineless and he was not weak. No matter what opposition he faced, he was determined to accomplish whatever it is the Father had given him to do. Not even the reality of being flogged with a cat of nine tails so that the flesh would be ripped off of his back or the nails being put in his hands and his feet while he was pushing his raw back up a wooden cross could cause Jesus to stumble or waver. Jesus stood firm. The Apostle Paul, though he was beaten and imprisoned while in Philippi for preaching the gospel, did not give up but stood firm and went on to Thessalonica to boldly, as the text in 1 Thessalonians says, to boldly preach the gospel there as well. And so the church needs to mimic Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Covenant Baptist Church needs to do the same. We are to stand firm, not allow anything to keep us from accomplishing what our God and our King has commanded us to perform. Now let me put some sting in this statement for, uh, for us as Christians in America in a culture that is growing more and more hostile to our faith. If the day ever comes, losing our religious freedom will not release us from our responsibility to stand firm and continue striving for the faith. Christians in China don't have religious freedom, but they are nonetheless standing firm. It is sickening to see portions of the church here in America, thankfully it's just portions, not all, to just buckle to the culture. Now, what does this come from? This comes from a fear of man instead of fearing God. So many Christians are so afraid of what our culture or society might think of them. Look, we are not going to get thrown in jail. 
We are not going to get tortured. We are not going to get starved if we say that homosexuality is a sin or that Jesus is the only way. Now, we might get threatened with those things, <clears throat> but currently, currently, we have the law on our side. <clears throat> we even have multiple highly qualified Christian legal organizations that will take cases all the way to the Supreme Court, and it's free. All right, if, folks, if there is any place on this earth where Christians should be standing firm, it ought to be here in the United States. Now, what would cause us, yes, even us, Covenant Baptist Church, what could cause us to fail to stand firm? Well, as I alluded to before, we have to realize that we are all, the church is made up of individuals, right? And so the, so the more solid that we are as individual Christians, the more solid that we are going to be as a congregation, as a church. So how can we be solid Christians who stand firm in the face of opposition? Well, one of the biggest ways, not the only way, but one of the biggest ways to be able to stand firm is to not get too attached to this life. The more attached we are to this life and the more things we have in our life that we need or think we need to be content, the more fragile and vulnerable we become. I think American Christians are very susceptible to this, even reformed ones. All right, we have lots and lots of comforts in this country. They're not evil or bad, but they can become snares to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look, folks, any, anything that we have in our life, whether it be material or even psychological, okay, it doesn't have to be material, that we must have to be content or happy is a target for Satan and the world to attack to get us to stumble. You see, our must-haves, they get threatened, which means our contentment and our peace in this life gets threatened. So the world says, look, look, we're not going to threaten these must-haves if you're just willing to compromise in just this area of your faith, okay? They're not going to ask for the whole package up front. They're after it. They're after it. <clears throat> but they say, if you won't compromise, if we decide to stand firm, the world says, we're going to come after your must-haves and threaten your peace and contentment in this life. And so the more must-haves that we have, the easier it is to attack us. Let me put it another way. If you have 10 things in your life that need to be right all or most of the time, whether it be, again, material or psychological or a combination of, you are more fragile and more vulnerable than if you only had, say, three things in your life that you needed to be content. So I've got some questions, okay? Can you be content without a successful professional career or at least the image of being a successful person? Can you be content without that? If not, that is a target for Satan and the world to attack to get you to fold. Can we be content without religious freedom? If not, expect the world and Satan to attack those freedoms to get us to compromise. Can we be content with just some of the material comforts that we have? Or do we have to have all of them and even more to be content? If we need all of them, expect Satan and the world to threaten them in order to get us to compromise. And I could go on and on. 
<clears throat> and again, folks, look, the, the problem isn't having a successful career. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God for that if you have that. Or religious freedom. Thank God for that too. It's how attached we are to them. All right? We need to minimize the vulnerabilities in our life, not increase them. And when we do so, we will be better able to stand firm. Now, there is a secret to doing this. Some of you probably already know what it is. And the secret is knowing, listen, listen, knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. The more you realize that your identity and your worth are completely found in Jesus, the less attached you're going to be to this life. And not only that, your, your list of the things that you must have in your life, that list is going to shrink. All right, let's look at what the Apostle Paul said. After giving up all his prestige and all that honor that he, has as a, that he had as a Pharisee for the sake of Christ. It's in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. That's a nice translation. It actually means dung. And count them but dung so that I may gain Christ. Now let's be honest. Right? This is much easier said than done. All right, But we must do this if we are going to stand firm. And I don't want you to be discouraged if you feel that you're not where you're at or you're not where you want to be in this area of your life. All right, you are, we will grow in it, we will. Even the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.11 said that he had to learn, the Apostle Paul said that he had to learn how to be content in whatever situation that he was in. So if the Apostle Paul had to learn how to do that, we're going to have to learn how to do it as well. <clears throat> now in verse 27, after exhorting us to be genuine at all times and to stand firm, we are then told that we are to be in one spirit, of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I think another way that we could read this is we should strive together by being in one spirit, of one mind, for the faith of the gospel. All right, and if you will, let me simplify this just one more time. We could say it is a call to unity and in doctrine and life. For the sake of the gospel. And so the success that we will have as a church. In striving together for the faith of the gospel. Depends on the unity that we have as a church. In our doctrine. And in our life. <clears throat> so let's look at these two, uh, these two things. Doctrine and life. <clears throat> now when it comes to doctrine. A question that we might have is. Well to what extent do we all need to be unified. In, in our doctrine as a church. Well <clears throat> minimally. We need to agree on the core doctrines of the faith, the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of salvation. These are necessary doctrines that determine whether or not we're even Christians. Now, some of you might have a different list than me, and that's fine. We can discuss it over a good cup of coffee, all right? But look, our doctrine of church government, that doesn't determine whether or not we're saved. 
Okay, if you're premillennial, if you're postmillennial, if you're amillennial, that doesn't determine your salvation. If you're a credo-baptist, if you're a pedo-baptist, that doesn't matter either. But it doesn't mean that these doctrines are to be ignored, okay, or that, or that God has little concern for them. Taking a minimalist approach to the faith is not the way we conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now, what do I mean by a minimalist approach? It is the idea that the church should shrink the Christian faith down in its most simple form and not delve into too many unnecessary doctrines because, you see, that just causes division and that just keeps unbelievers from coming to Jesus. And so the doctrines that are in the Bible that aren't really necessary for salvation, we're just not going to make a big deal out of them. Okay? That's what I would call the unbiblical, seeker-sensitive, Andy Stanley approach to the Christian faith. This is what happens when the church compromises out of a desire to gain man's acceptance instead of God. So remember, it was a fear of man instead of a fear of God. Now it's trying to gain a man's acceptance instead of trying to gain God's acceptance in what we do. And so why, why does the minimalist approach dishonor the faith of the gospel? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. The first reason is that the promise of the gospel is found all the way in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. And the promise of the gospel fulfilled is found all the way at the end of the Bible in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. Which means everything in between is related one way or another to this primary theme of redemption through Jesus, which God will use to, to ultimately bring maximum glory to his name. And so... So if the whole Bible is about the faith of the gospel for the glory of God, we should strive to know and understand the whole Bible. Now the second reason we have is because God himself tells us not to take a minimalist approach. Let's look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. I love this verse. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Let me ask you a question. What would the statement, the things revealed in that verse, what would that refer to at this time of redemptive history? The things revealed, what would that refer to right now? It refers to the completed canon. It refers to the entire Bible. And so what this verse tells us is that there are many things that God could have told us that many of us would probably like to know, all right? But what he did give us was what he intended for us to observe in its entirety. Look at the end of the verse. It says, uh, we are to observe all, all the words of this law. Jesus even told the apostles in Matthew 28, 20, that they were to make disciples of all nations and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And if that isn't enough, look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so nothing that God has given us in his word is arbitrary. Now, obviously, certain revelation has more weight to it than other areas of the Bible. 
but none of it is to be looked at as a take it or, or leave it. All right, churches that take a minimalist approach to the Christian faith, they're sinning against God because they're disobeying his word and they fail to properly equip God's people to live a faithful Christian life, especially in the face of opposition. And so the unity in doctrine that we're being called to in verse 27 is not in the least amount of biblical truth as possible. It's in the most amount of truth as possible. This is one of the great benefits of being part of a confessional church. Right? A truly confessional church will strive to bring the congregation into as much <clears throat> unity as possible in as much doctrine as possible. Our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, has 32 chapters in it that deal with more than just the basic doctrines of the faith. It takes a whole Bible approach to the Christian faith. Now, is everybody in here a full subscriber to the 1689 Confession? No. And that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to be a 1689 particular Baptist to be a member of this church. Reformed Pado-Baptists can be a blessing to reform Credo-Baptists and vice versa. Okay, but, but look at what we're trying to do. By preaching and teaching in accordance with our confession, we are striving to bring all of our members into unity in their doctrine in every area of the Bible. Why? So we can obey this command. So we can be in one spirit and of one mind. Now, is that enough? Okay, it's not. Being unified to a great extent in our doctrine is not enough by itself to strive together for the faith of the gospel as we ought to. Orthodoxy ought to lead to orthopraxy, right? To live, and to live contrary to what we know is to undermine it, all right? Conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is not just knowing what the Bible says, it's doing what it says, right? That's what we're told in James 1.22, be ye doers of the word and not just hearers only. And so if Covenant Baptist Church, if we're going to have an effective witness in Clarksville, I know we're in Oak Grove right now, we're going to be in Clarksville, okay? But if we're going to have an effective witness in Clarksville, we must all strive to live grateful, hopeful, holy lives that accord with what we know and are growing in knowing according to the word of God. Okay, and again, this is a corporate call. All of us as individuals make up the corporate witness of this church. Okay, we're not an island unto ourselves. We're going to go out after this service into our individual lives, right? Into our separate areas of life. The way we conduct ourselves individually is either, is either going to improve the corporate witness of this church or it's going to damage it. Now, what happens when we live hypocritical lives contrary to the gospel? Well, we give ammunition to our opposition. I know that sounds kind of quirky, okay? We give ammunition to our opposition. We give them reason to accuse us, and we embolden them to come after us. They don't need any help as it is, okay? We weaken our defense, and not only that, Shame is brought upon the Lord's name because we're his people. We bear his name. Romans 2.24 says that the name of God is blasphemed among the nations if his people live hypocritical lives. Look at what Paul tells Timothy as a man of God, an elder, 
right, who's to be an example to the congregation, which means the congregation is to mimic him. Look at what he says to him in 1 Timothy 4.16. <clears throat> Pay close attention to yourself, life, and to your teaching, doctrine. Persevere in these things. Stand firm. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And so in summary of verse 27, we are to be genuine at all times, standing firm together, growing in our knowledge of God's word, living according to that knowledge in order to form a faithful corporate witness that is worthy of the gospel. So let's move on. We're going to look at verse 28. Remember, this is going to be our motivation. And so it's a continuation of verse 27. And it says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So in this verse, Paul is building on his previous exhortation in verse 27 for us to stand firm in the face of, in the face of opposition. Now, let's keep in mind that the situation that Paul is in when he writes this. He is currently under house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel. When he was in Philippi, again, he was illegally beaten and in prison for casting out a, a, a wicked spirit out of a slave girl in the name of Jesus. If you, if you look at Acts 16, the, the slave girl was bringing profit to her masters by fortune telling. And it was this, this uh, evil spirit that was within her that was giving her that ability. And Paul cast it out of her in the name of Christ. And so afterwards, Paul and Silas are accused of teaching things contrary, look, to the customs of Roman culture. So the gospel was an affront and a threat to the pagan culture in Philippi. Guess what the gospel is today in America? It's an affront to the pagan culture in America. Paul had opponents to the gospel. We have opponents to the gospel. But look at this. Paul exhorts us not to be, uh, not to be alarmed by our opponents after suffering much at the hands of them. Right? So we have to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean that we're not supposed to be alarmed by our opponents? I mean, is he saying we shouldn't be afraid or maybe concerned about what might happen to us if we do face real persecution and suffering? I don't, think that, I don't think that's what Paul means. You know, when Paul and Silas were about to get beaten, I don't think they had this, you know, no biggie, nonchalant attitude. I don't think Paul <clears throat> turned to, to Silas and said, hey, there's this great Euro place down the road. How about we go grab a bite to eat after our beating? All right? <laughs> I have no doubt whatsoever that they were praying both in fear and in faith that God would come to their rescue and help them to endure being harshly beaten. And the text says they were beaten with rods. So again, what does Paul mean by not being alarmed by our opponents? I believe what he is telling us is that we are to have faith. <clears throat> he is exhorting the saints to persevere by believing in the promises of God. Okay, now well, what promises? Well, they're actually alluded to in the text. The first is the destruction of our opponents. The Greek word for destruction in the text apparently refers to eternal destruction. It's not temporal. And so we must believe, we must believe 
that those who oppose us will stand before God one day to be judged for the harm they either intended or actually inflicted on us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. That is a promise. That is going to happen. We have to realize that those who oppose us are actually the ones who are in real danger. They can harm us physically, and that's no small thing. That's no small thing. But God will torment both their body and soul perpetually in hell. Now, the other promise is salvation for us. We must believe that we have a glory that awaits us that far outweighs anything we might temporarily suffer here. Look at Romans 8.18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, that statement is coming from from the Apostle Paul who said he had been beaten times without number, stoned, shipwrecked three times, in prison, in constant fear of his life, in hunger, in thirst, and in exposure to cold and more. I actually minimized that list from the text. And so Paul's saying, look, if you go through all of that or worse, it pales in comparison to the life that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. And so if we're going to do this successfully, We have to keep these promises at the forefront of our thoughts when we are facing opposition in this life from Satan and the world. We have to realize we have already won. We've already won. And if they don't repent, they have already lost. Now let me give you a fairly modern day example of what not being alarmed by your opponents through faith in God's promises looks like. Some of you might be familiar with a man named Sergei Kortikov. He wrote the book, The Persecutor. I recommend it. He was in the Russian Navy in the late 1960s and 70s. He was the leader of a secret group of men who were sent to eradicate Christianity by beating and arresting arresting Christians that were found in secret uh, house churches. They were all big, strong men, six foot plus Trained fighters, trained to box, trained to wrestle, right? They were brutal. They were merciless. Sergei once beat an an elderly woman, an elderly woman, beat her so bad she died three days later. No mercy. Now, he eventually converted to Christianity, and he tells the story of a young girl named Natasha. Now, some of you might have heard this story if you haven't heard of the book or Sergei. She had already been beaten once. The first time she was found in a house church, she was actually thrown against a wall and hit the wall at the same level she was thrown. That's how hard she was thrown. And she fell to the ground semi-conscious. The second time they found her, they wanted to make sure that she would never be found at a secret house church again. They stripped her naked. They held her down. And Sergei was beating her back with an open hand until her skin blistered and split open. Her flesh was coming off on his hand. She was in so much pain, she bit through her bottom lip. And they thought after that, she won't dare be found in another church worshiping God again. They found her again. And one of the men, one of the Russian soldiers who was persecuting Christians, 
He is so overcome with awe, he actually stands in front of her and defends her. And he tells the other Russian soldiers, if you attempt to lay a hand on her, I'm going to beat you up. And here's what he said. Listen to this. He said, she has something we don't have. Her perseverance was a sign, like it says in verse 28, was a sign of her salvation and their destruction. What would cause a 16 to 18 year old girl to endure so much pain and still persevere in her faith? She believed the promises of God. Now, of course, I'm sure when she went back to that other church, was she afraid of what might happen to her physically if she was caught again? Of course she would. Who wouldn't be? I would be afraid. But she knew ultimately her opponents would lose. She had salvation in Christ, and they were the owners of eternal destruction. If we stand firm and persevere together, we will send the same message to our opponents as well. All right, we're nearing towards the end. Let's look at verse 29, <clears throat> which tells us why we face opposition. <clears throat> Let me read the verse again. It says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. If I asked you, Have you been granted eternal life in Christ? and you answered yes, then if I asked you, has it been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake, your answer must be yes. It's a package deal. If you get the one, you get the other. And we, so in light of this, we, we really shouldn't be so shocked when we see the things going on in our country that oppose Christ and his church. There are a lot of Christians in America that think that if, if, if we just elect the right people and we get the right people in the Supreme Court, we can nullify this scripture. Now, I'm not suggesting that we abandon fighting for our religious freedom. No, I thank God for it. We would be fools to do so. And I think to cease fighting for it would demonstrate that we really didn't appreciate it to begin with. But look, if suffering... <clears throat> If suffering to varying degrees is part of the way God will bring maximum glory to himself in the consummation of all things, we are fools to think we can eradicate it this side of the return of Christ. Okay, our salvation and our suffering, according to the text, are for the sake of the glory of God. God is not going to minimize his glory. Now, let's be honest, this can be very, very difficult to understand, especially when we see the type of suffering Christians have and are even still enduring. God doesn't tell us how all the suffering his people have endured will work to his glory and our good. Let's look at Isaiah 55, 89. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When God told Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac, okay, he must have been in shock. And if you're a parent, you, you probably have an idea of what I'm talking about, right? 
But, but look, as difficult as this must have been for Abraham, he did not waver in his faith, but instead trusted God. In Hebrews eleven nineteen, it says, Abraham believed God could raise people from the dead, and so knowing that Isaac was the child of promise, he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead even if he sacrificed him. And so God is telling us to keep trusting him no matter how painful or confusing the situation is. All right, we, we must persevere in believing that all things will work together for good to those that love the Lord. All right, and folks, look, if there is ever a time that the people of God ought to be unified, it's when God allows our opposition to inflict suffering and persecution upon us. All right, we should, we should rejoice with those who rejoice, but we should weep with those who weep. And typically, the comfort that God provides his people is me, uh, when they're suffering is mediated through the church. All right? Look, folks, if you love somebody and they're in pain, what happens? Their pain causes you pain. If we really love one another in this church, then if anyone in this church is suffering, then in a way, we all suffer. All right? Suffering especially intense suffering, which I'm very thankful we are not experiencing right now, can make us very vulnerable to the temptation and schemes of the devil. We are very susceptible to start believing God doesn't love us, he doesn't care that I'm suffering, or he doesn't know that I'm suffering, right? When we are enduring harsh difficulties in our life. But when this happens, look, the best thing that we can do is to look to the cross of Christ. All right, let me explain. It is in the cross that we see the things that we need most. The first thing we see is justice. The cross shows us how serious God is about sin. All the wicked things done to Christians will be punished. Think about it. If God will not allow the sins of his own people whom he loved and knew beforehand, before the foundation of the earth, if he won't let their sins go unpunished, what makes us think he'll let the sins of the wicked go unpunished? 2 Thessalonians 1.6 says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The second thing, the second thing that we see is that our sins were so wicked that it took the shed blood and death of God's son to atone for them. And so as hard as it might be to believe, apart from God's grace, we could be the persecutors and torturers of God's people. Look at the apostle Paul. He was destroying Christian families. He was dragging men and women to prison. And finally, we need to see the love of God and the cross for his people. After Natasha had been so brutally beaten, she had to have complicated, or actually, uh, contemplated, excuse me, she had to have contemplated the love that God had for her in the cross of Christ. What else could have motivated her to keep going to those secret house churches to worship God? Clinging to our belief in God's great love for us manifested in the cross is the greatest anchor that we have to keep us from crumbling <clears throat> under suffering and persecution. 
And so let me see if I can <clears throat> boil this all down, okay, these verses. What it comes down to, folks, is do we believe the word of God, really? Because if we do, we will stand together, firm in the faith, unwavering in the face of opposition because we believe in the promises of God towards his people. We will be like Joshua and Caleb, knowing that the promised land is ours, and so no matter how big our enemies are, they will not cause us to stumble. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you again for your word. Father, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world, Father. Give them an abundance of your grace so that they can remain faithful in persecution. Father, we thank you that we are not suffering in a like way, but Father, if eventually you, you do bring that to your church here in the United States, we pray that likewise you will cause us to stand firm, persevere, and remain faithful to you. And we ask this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.